Welcome to In Focus, a podcast by Cronkite News, the news division of Arizona PBS. In our third season, we're covering sustainability issues across Arizona. I'm Atlin Hassard, and in this episode, we're shining the light on efforts being made by animal conservationists to protect native species. This starts with the Arizona desert bighorn sheep and a multi-hour hike we took to see firsthand how one society is helping prevent disease and dehydration. We're on the north end of the Silver Bell Mountains, uh, heading up toward uh, Silver Bell Peak. We're going right up on top of that. So I got the chance to meet Joe Sheehy. He's the former president of the Arizona Desert Bighorn Sheep Society. This guy is 70 years old and hikes upwards of 10 miles a week. Well, a couple years ago, I had both knees replaced. The, the left one doesn't bend. Two miles through cacti and jagged terrain made for a bit of a rough trek, and uh, I fell a couple times. Oh, oh. Oops. No worries. Oh. I got a big old slice across my arm, and that's from one of those just down the hill from that. And you see a big old white butt standing there. See it? There's about 6,000 bighorn sheep in Arizona right now. They're just such a majestic animal, living such such rugged country, and uh, they just intrigue me. Bighorn sheep are an iconic species. You know, they're just part of the Southwest and Arizona. This is a big success story for conservationists. Bighorn sheep were all but wiped out like a century ago. They even started disappearing from uh, local mountain ranges around Arizona in the past 20 years. They're tough as nails. They live in the hottest, harshest, desolate environment, but they're so susceptible to disease. But we do know that when wild sheep come in contact with domestic sheep, that the wild sheep die. Joe told me that the most common illnesses plaguing sheep are pneumonia, eczema, and pink eye. We have some disease issues in the northern part of the state, which is always concerning because that could easily uh, move throughout population. Arizona Desert Bighorn Sheep Society and Game and Fish are working together to help fight uh, the issue of disease. And luckily, looking at the big picture, things are on the up and up. The higher we get up here, the more sheep beds we're gonna see. I think what we're finding is the sheep in this region uh, have really flourished, uh, and a lot of it has to do with the amount of water that's available to them. Joe helps to maintain man-made water catchments so sheep always have a drinking source in dry years. In wet years, a a herd of desert bighorn could do okay without uh, free water. Uh, In years like we've had this year, we would probably lose a lot of juveniles and lambs to the drought. Joe told me there wouldn't be like nearly the population of healthy sheep without these catchments. Uh, we got to see one of them ourselves, this huge metal apron, uh, up close when we finally reached the peak. Big 
bighorn sheep are now living in 80% of their historic ranges, each of those home to some of the 150 waterholes constructed by the Arizona Desert Bighorn Sheep Society since 1967. Oh, I just love seeing these animals. Your cares go away. Being a quiet, beautiful place. Very happy place for me. Joe says his favorite part of seeing the sheep is when he gets to watch the newborn lambs play and butt heads with each other. About two hours north of the Silver Bell Mountains, there's a sanctuary for birds of prey. They treat them for all kinds of illnesses and injuries, including a prominent problem people don't even realize is happening. Everything that we have up here is where the injured birds come in. Uh, this is our treatment area. I met Bob Fox. He's the director of Wild at Heart, a nonprofit wildlife rehabilitation center in Cave Creek specializing in injured and orphaned birds of prey. Uh, right now, we're, our numbers are down. We've only got, uh, you know, maybe a dozen here in the hospital room. Uh, last year, we took in over 850 birds of prey. They have about 150 to 175 birds total. Among the ones still there is Concha. This is Concha. She was a Eurasian eagle owl, so a non-native species. I will go in. She's a very uh, temperamental bird. Now you'll see the size of her feet. She's got a gripping power of about 800 pounds per hour. Eurasian eagle owls are one of the largest owls in the world. Bob says the goal of Wild at Heart is to get these birds back into the wild but they still have a lot of cool species on hand. So in this enclosure, we have our Mexican spotted owls. Last time I had a reporter go in there, he smacked her in the face, so I won't let you do that. But Bob says there's a problem affecting birds of prey that not a lot of people know about. Rat poison, otherwise known as rodenticides. The problem with rodenticides, a rat eats that, it's out, it takes several days for it to die, it can lethargic, make it easy prey for birds of prey, you know, hawks, owls. When they ingest that, they're also ingesting the poison. When someone uses rodenticides, unwittingly killing these birds, it actually has the opposite effect of what was intended. They may kill a rat or two, and that rat or two may kill a bird of prey. Well, that bird of prey will eat hundreds of rats in a year's time. So you're really not affecting the problem in a positive way. You're actually creating more of a problem. That problem especially affects great horned owls like Mags. Mags is a little owl that came into us as a nestling with uh, eyes full of maggots and his scalp was peeled back to the to the bone. And uh, he is he's basically blind. He's got a little vision in one eye. Even if some pest controls claim their poison doesn't have these same harmful effects, it's not necessarily true. So we found out what the specific product was, went online and found out, yes, it has the same secondary effect as every other poison that goes out there. It goes right up the food chain. Bob says they get birds with rodenticide-related sickness every couple of weeks, but treating them is a difficult process that needs to start almost immediately after exposure. The sooner the better. And like I said, that's the big issue with birds of prey is they don't show signs right away and they don't be, they're not on the ground where you can actually get them until they're almost uh, in a comatose you know, state. A bird of prey will take about two to three days to die after ingesting a rodenticide. Bob says the successful treatment rate is under 10%. Yeah, we, we do everything we can, um, but it's, it's sometimes it's just, it's just no avail. And basically sometimes what we're here for is it's, it's a halfway house. It's a place where an animal can come and die peacefully. And if the wrong owl eats a poisoned rat, it can affect entire families. So I went up and looked in the nest and you go, I could see the female. She was dead. 
wings spread and picking her up, all three of her young were dead also, and all with, with blood coming out of their feathers. This can even lead to the annihilation of an entire species from some parts of the country. In some areas of, of the U.S., barn owls have been extirpated from the region because of rodenticides. They've just, you know, wiped them out. Bob recommends live trapping as the best alternative to rodenticides. There are some areas, I know in Napa Valley and some others in the vineyards, are putting barn owl boxes back up in and using natural predators, which is a much better way of solving the problem. Yeah, we release about 60% of the birds that come into us, so that's a pretty high release rate. There you go, little girl. Bob says if properly kept in captivity, great horned owls can live into their 20s and 30s. Both of those stories were produced by me, Atlan Hassard. Next up, a day in the life of a woman who pleases poachers. So I rode around with Officer Laura Orschlin while she was patrolling a javelina hunt. Where it's the last day of the hunt and I've killed my javelina and I'm trying to help you find yours and kill yours and it's 30 minutes before sunset and your tag's not gonna get filled. I've already shot my javelina, but there's 30 minutes and I have another one in front of me that I can shoot and then we'll just put your tag on it and say you shot it so that you don't go home empty handed. That's called buddy hunting and that's poaching, basically. Poaching is a big problem nationwide, but it's also a problem in Arizona. We have large deer populations and people unfortunately kill without licenses or kill and just waste game meat. Um, and this is the snaky criminal stuff. People will kill a deer or whatever and not put a tag on it, not put a tag on it, not put a tag on it. They make it all the way home, they never get checked, nobody ever knows. They come back out and they hunt again on the same tag. So we woke up pretty early. We met around 6 a.m. at one of the Arizona Game and Fish offices, and we drove down to Florence, and we talked about how she got involved and kind of why she does what she does. So when I was in high school, my school did a career fair, actually. I knew I wanted to do something either with animals or outdoors related. So I got to listen to, I think it was a veterinarian, a small animal vet, a zoo, the zoo manager, um, and then a game warden. And after that career fair and listening to the game warden speak, I was like, that's it. That's the job for me. That's what I want to do. So I started going on ride-alongs, just like what you're doing today. And then started volunteering and then got a temporary, just part-time seasonal job. And that's back South where I'm Florence. from in the east. And she I was just talking to people and checking licenses, checking their tags, seeing if they had tagged their animals properly, and making as many contacts as possible. She really wanted people to know she was out there so that if something was to happen, they could talk to her and report to her. The Arizona Game and Fish Department has a Operation Game and Thief hotline, and people can call in anonymously and report possible poaching incidents that they see or suspicious activity. And last year they received about a thousand calls in regards to wildlife. And of those thousand calls, there were 76 citations last year. So 
the hotline is definitely successful. They get a lot of traction and it helps people like Laura investigate those potential poaching cases. We don't even take down their name or phone number and it's just an anonymous tip. The problem with that, if people remain completely anonymous, is that we don't take down their information. The rate, the dispatchers don't take down their information. So when people call, we need things like exactly what the person was wearing, exactly what that person looks like. Are they six foot five and skinny as a rail, or are they five foot ten, medium build? Um, we need the vehicle that they get in and leave in, and a license plate, and what their equipment looked like. If there's something weird about the way they walk, we want to know that because it all just helps us narrow in on the person who committed the violation and just builds the evidence to write a solid ticket on it. You guys see anything yet this morning? Yesterday? Yeah, nothing today. Anybody in camp have anything yet? Oh, good. Where are you guys camped at? Um, she really tried to talk to as many people as she saw, and the campsites were right out in the open. They were right next to the dirt road, so they were really pretty visible. Okay. Cool. Good deal. Well. Nice. She has had some people who are not happy to see her and try to weasel their, their way out of a ticket or a citation, but, I mean, she goes into a campsite with hunters who have guns all the time, so she definitely stays on her A-game. She's smaller than I am, but she's smart and she's good at her job. I mean, she's a trained police officer. She goes through the academy just like everybody else and definitely knows what she's doing. I don't feel like I'm small. I tell people are like, you're little. I'm like, no, I'm not. Like, no. I'm like a chihuahua. I think I'm way bigger than I actually am. I try to come into situations with an air and an attitude of, I'm in charge here and you better listen to me or things aren't going to go smoothly for you. That story comes to us from Cronkite News reporter Megan Boudreaux with fellow InFocus host Alexandra Watts producing. Our final story of the podcast comes to us from my hometown of Pine Top, where we traveled with Arizona Game and Fish to learn about their conservation efforts for the state's own Apache trout. So Arizona has a state gem. It's turquoise. We also recently just got our official state dinosaur, the Sonorosaurus. But did you know that we also have a state fish? It's the Apache trout. So we went up to Pine Top, Arizona and met with the Arizona Game and Fish Department. And right now they're helping the trout population. So we're headed to the West Fork of the Little Colorado River. The stream that we're going to is a recovery stream for Apache trout. Today we're going to go out and do a little bit of lecture fishing, see if we can pick up some, some wild Apache trout and show you see what those look like. The trout population has been through a lot. Over time, settlers like to fish for them, provided a, a good protein source. Back then, turn of the century, there were no regulations, so there was quite a bit of over-harvest going on. People were fishing the trout so much that the population was decreasing, and when they noticed this, they thought, well, let's put in other types of trout. But Apache trout are native, and these other types of trout are non-native or invasive. And this repopulating with other trout made the situation worse. There were also some other things that were impacting them, some habitat degrade degradation, 
cattle grazing, logging, road building. So back in the mid-50s, the White Mountain Apache tribe uh, recognized that, you know, these fish are disappearing and something really needs to be done about that. And they took some pretty drastic but super important steps at that time and closed a lot of streams. And most of those were located on the Fort Apache Indian Reservation. And then when the Endangered Species Act was signed into law in 1973, uh, again, they were one of the first species to be listed under that act, listed as endangered at that point, which is the highest risk of becoming extinct. By 1975, the service determined that there was enough recovery work that had been done that they downlisted them to threatened in, in 1975. But there are still some threats out there, one of them being wildfires. The damages from the wildfires can affect them, but currently these fish are doing okay. So this is the West Fork of the Little Colorado River. There's also another stream that's just uh, a mile or two to the, to the south of us called the East Fork of the Little Colorado River. And those um, kind of flow parallel to each other. They're both recovery streams. And Fish are born in hatcheries and later they are introduced to various waterways around the state. Electrofishing is a way to monitor them, and it's a lot less scary than it seems. That is the main technique that we use to, to capture fish. We use it during surveys. It's a system that puts an electrical shock in the water that stuns the fish temporarily, and we can net them up quickly, they come out of it pretty quick. So the electrofishing, it is a little bit stressful on them. 98% of the fish uh, will survive well through it. Occasionally, it, it, it can have some, some pretty hard effects on them, but usually not. If you have your, and we work with the settings, um, they, they get pretty complicated. And if we have them uh, set right, then it's usually not lethal. Some of the anglers disagree with some of the methods used to protect the Apache trout. They believe that they are being limited. So whether it's a fish or somebody who just enjoys fishing, there has to be a balance. You know, sport fish recreation, native species recovery is also part of that multiple use as well. So we all have these balances that we're trying to maintain. That story was produced by Alexander Watts with all Creative Commons music by Poddington Bear. That's it for this episode of In Focus. Stay tuned for our next episode where we head to an eco-village and engage with community members doing their best to live sustainably. For more sustainability coverage, visit cronkitenews.azpbs.org. Make sure to follow us on social media at Cronkite News. This podcast is produced as part of Elemental, a new multimedia collaboration between Cronkite News, Arizona PBS, KJZZ, KPCC, Rocky Mountain PBS, and PBS SoCal.